1 Samuel 20. Well, this may surprise you. Ooh, not 2 Samuel 20. That's next year, maybe. This may surprise you, but I love a good love story. Might surprise you. You might not know that by the movies that I choose. My wife is the one who chooses the love story movies. Uh, they're great for sleeping often. Um, but I should probably clarify what I mean by a love story. Because what I mean by a love story isn't necessarily what Hollywood means by a love story. I like the kind of love stories that stretch for 50 or 60 or 70 years. And Hollywood gets this occasionally. I think of The Notebook, which I've slept through a couple times, which originally was the book. You know, my wife and I, we're only in our 30s, and so our story doesn't really qualify for this type of love story yet. But insofar as it depends on me, I hope that it will one day. I love seeing pictures of elderly marital faithfulness. And when I say picture, I don't mean a photograph. I mean examples. Thankfully, in this church, we have many. I think of Milton and Phyllis Goins, who are going to celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary, I think next month. 70th wedding anniversary. We got a ways to go, babe. 70 years of keeping the marriage covenant. I've also had the privilege of seeing several marriage covenants when they come to an end in faithfulness. I remember standing in the home of Randall and Bernice Trent at the end of her life, went to the bedroom and I watched how Randall cared for her all the way to the very end of her life, even when it was hard. I watched my grandfather patiently and resolutely love my grandmother through her years of dementia, even when she got, forgot him, even when she woke up screaming for him to get out of the house. She loved, he loved her patiently. I watched my other grandmother, my dad's mom, patiently love and care for my grandfather at the end of his life, which was hard. In all of these cases, the, the faithful spouse had nothing to gain. Right? Their, their spouse couldn't really give them anything. Nothing to gain from the romantic relationship. But even in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty and loss, they upheld their marriage covenant and they loved sacrificially. And I praise God for their examples and many of the examples that are around us. These are examples of the protection and the stability that a covenant provides. Even or especially when life is hard, when it's really, really hard. Tonight, we're not really talking about marriage in this context, but we're coming to 1 Samuel chapter 20, where we're going to learn about the nature of covenants and the protection that they provide. Our text has the same usual characters that we've had in recent chapters. Jonathan, David, and Saul, and Saul's spear, which is becoming a character in this book. And the text is especially going to highlight the way that Jonathan is a faithful covenant keeper, especially when it's hard. 
And so I suppose that brings us to our main idea for the text this evening. I'll read it here in a moment. But I, I think the main idea is this. Because of sin, life in a fallen world is scary, uncertain, and unfair. But uncommon safety and peace can be found in the context of covenants. Life's really hard. We sang about that just a moment ago. But uncommon protection is found within covenants. We've got 42 chapter verses in our chapter tonight. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to read most of it, but I'm going to summarize a couple sections rather than read them. So just follow along. Remember, it's not much good if I'm just up here talking about it. It's only helpful if this is God's word. So make sure that it is. We'll start in chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan, verse 4, said to David, whatever you, do, whatever you say, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave to, to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then you will know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let's go out to the field. So they both went out into the field. Verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But if it should please my father to do harm to you, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. In verses 18 through 20, 22, apparently the danger is so significant that Jonathan and David come up with a secret plan for communicating. 
And so they, the plan involves an arrow and a servant. You've probably read that before. Look down now at verse 23. As for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. It's for this reason that he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew, yeah, that this, that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I'm going to summarize verses 35 to 40. This tells us where they, they use their secret prearranged plan. And Jonathan communicated to David that Saul is indeed murderously angry at David. Now let's read two more verses in verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone's heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the inspired, inerrant, profitable word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. It is sometimes confusing to us. It can sometimes feel distant to us, but Lord, we have your spirit, and so we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray, Lord, that tonight and in this time, my words would fall to the ground, blow, be blown away and forgotten, because we don't need to hear from any man, we need to hear from you. So let your word remain and let it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention to five lessons from this text. Five lessons that will work together to help us understand the importance of covenant relationships in a world that's stained by sin. The first lesson is this. Life in a fallen world is full of trouble. 
I didn't know the song that Nathan was going to pick tonight. It talked about the good times and it talked about the hard times. Well, that's what life is like. It's full of trouble. You know this, but let's look at this in the text. Generally speaking, there are about four scenes in this text. And in the first one, we, we hear this private conversation in verses 1 through 11 that's going on between David and Jonathan. Essentially, what's happening is this. From David's perspective, Saul has thrown a spear at him too, too many times. I would agree. And he is starting to panic a little. I think that that's what we see in the text. He's, he's realized that his relationship with King Saul, his father-in-law, is not going to get any better. And he is a legitimate enemy and he's trying to kill him. In verse 1, David cries out about how unfair this is. He hasn't done anything wrong. It's unjust. But Jonathan seems to be in denial about this. Verses 2 and following. Basically, he says, no, 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 David, you're overreacting. Plus, I I mean, I know everything my father does. If my father was going to kill you, he would tell me about it first. Well, that did not come for David at all, right? Jonathan seemed to be uh, remembering what Saul said back in chapter 19, verse 6, when he had made a vow not to hurt David, which he promptly broke. But apparently, Jonathan's a glass half full kind of guy. So David frantically argues with him. And in verse 4, he basically says, look, I'm, I'm, a step, I'm a dead man walking. I'm a step away from death. And as we know, Jonathan will soon find out that David's right. Saul does want to kill David. Now, I think one of the first things that we can draw from this text is that you and I, just like David and Jonathan, we live in a world that is broken and full of trouble. Your life is not the way God intends for it to be originally. Life is not the way God intended for it to be. He doesn't intend death, sickness, divorce, disease, despair, sin. We, we should know that because of sin that this is the way it is. That life is hard. And this should not be a surprise to us. So often, this is much more true for young folks than it is older folks. But so often, we're surprised when our troubles come upon us. We shake our fists. God, how could you be doing this to me? My life's supposed to be easy. We get surprised. I'm sure David knew this, but it seems like in the text, he had lost sight of this. He seems to be panicking. I mean, think about it. There's, no, there's numerous times in Samuel and in the Psalms where we see David facing incredible danger and he has, he has this great faith, right? Think about Goliath. This is not, this doesn't seem to be the same guy who faced Goliath with a stone, right? He, he, he's panicking. We don't see that confidence here. But furthermore, I think there's a couple other elements in the text that, that remind us that this world is full of trouble. Let me highlight just a couple. First of all, David, this is God's guy, right? He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He's like one of the most heroic figures in all of the Old Testament. If there's going to be a guy that has an easy life, wouldn't it be David, right? He's the anointed one. God has selected him to be the next king. And what is his life like? Full of danger. He, I've never had a spear chucked at me. He's had it two times. Even the most special of God's people live troubled lives. You and I are no exception. 
A second thing to notice is that as the text develops, we're reminded that broken relationships and strained relationships are characteristic for our life in this world. Because of Saul's sin, we'll see that Jonathan and David, that their friendship is broken forever. It leads to the most famous tearful goodbye in all of scripture at the end of the chapter. And for Jonathan, not only does he lose David, his, his closest friend, but he loses his father, presumably his mother as well, and he loses the whole kingdom. It's all because of Saul's sin. There are other people who sin against you and make your life hard. I know, I know. We see it. We also see that physical separation is part of life. We are saying goodbye to several folks in our church this month. We need to put the locks on Virginia and stop having people escape away to Virginia, right? We've just said goodbye to the Dentons and the Bates and soon Miss, Miss Jean Lively. Physical separation is a part of life here. But that's not how God intended for it to be. He does not intend for us to be separate. Separation, either because of sin or because of moving or because of death, it's unnatural. And it will not, I believe, be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Perhaps that's why that new resurrection body that Jesus showed off could walk through walls, right? No separation in the body of Christ. But we're also reminded that life just is not fair. Life is just not fair. I think it's important to note this, and we've noted it before, that Jonathan was going to be the natural heir to the throne. And he didn't do anything wrong, but because of his father's sin, he's going to lose the throne. Life is not fair. Teach your kids, but also remind yourself. Life isn't fair. Life is hard. Sin and its effects have made your life hard. You face problems today. I've heard about all sorts of different difficulties that we're facing Jesus thought that this was important enough to say, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. Christians should have a resolute realism that acknowledges that life is hard, that life can be difficult. The world around us tries to deny this and avoid it. They live in denial. All, we see this in all sorts of ways, right? <laughs> plastic surgery, all right? <laughs> oh, never mind. We live in denial that, that we age and that life is hard. We don't, we don't see the problems celebrated. Those the people with real problems, they kind of shrink away off to the side. We're given the picture that life is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be good. You're supposed to be healthy and it's supposed to be fair. But that's not true. It's hard. And it's against this backdrop, the backdrop of sin and all the consequences it brings, it's only against that backdrop can we understand the incredible, hopeful promises of grace and redemption. And as Christians see, as Christians alone, we should be the people more than anyone in the world who understand that we alone have the resources for true peace. One of my favorite secular singers, I was listening to his album today, and he's miserable, right? He's miserable. His girl left him, he, what, his dog, whatever. He's, 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 a, he's kind of a whiny guy, but he can play the guitar. And, and he's miserable. His life is empty. He wrote a whole album about it. 
Christians alone know the source for lasting peace. So our troubles, the way we face our troubles, should be fundamentally different than the way everyone else does. Because we know the end of the story. We have all the resources that we need. But this brings us to the next point. Covenants, covenant promises provide safety in a fallen world. Covenant promises provide safety in a fallen world. I think covenants play a central role in chapter 20. Often we hear this as just being a passage about friendship. And and I think it's that, but I think it's more. But there's a couple covenants we should take note of in the text. First of all, in verse 8, we see David make reference to a covenant. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? All right? So here David is appealing to the covenant that Jonathan had previously made with him back in chapter 18, where he said that he was making a covenant to love him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan had already referenced this and was acting on this in verse 4. But we also see Jonathan working to establish a covenant promise with David. Let's read verses 14 and 17 again. I think these are important. Okay, so, so Jonathan says, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to go do all these things. I'm going I'm to stick up for you. I'm going to get this information for you about my father's intentions. But it's probably not going to go well for me. So, when you have the kingdom, if, verse 14, I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And then there it is in 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And then Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Okay, so what's going on here? I think verse 23 also makes clear that this is covenant language. It's not just talk. It's actually showing that these commitments were driving the way that they acted. I just had the privilege of doing a wedding ceremony for a young couple, and I was like pleading with them. Okay, look, I know there's flowers and like all the, like you got to pick napkins and stuff, but you are making a lifelong covenant and try to help them see how significant this is, right? We can miss it sometimes. Okay, well, what's a covenant? Like, why is this, why is this significant? Let's pause and just talk just for a moment about covenants. I think a simple definition of a covenant would be this. It's an agreement about the terms of a relationship. An agreement about the terms of a relationship. It's different from a contract in that it defines both the promises that each party intends to keep as well as the consequences if they don't keep it. All right, this may not seem important yet, but bear with me. It's especially relational, right? It focuses on relationships. Covenants are especially important in the biblical story. They form the whole backbone of the Bible's storyline. I don't think, as I was saying on Sunday night, I don't think it's an understatement for us to say, if you don't understand the biblical covenants, you're not going to be able to understand your Bible very well. I've been studying this and I'm finding this to be true in my life. And the reason for this is the covenants, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with um, Abraham, the covenant with Israel and Moses, and then the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant with David, these covenants are the vehicle that God has chosen to relate to sinful humanity. 
Did you catch that? The covenants are the vehicle that God has chosen to relate to sinful humanity. Our relationship to God in the New Testament is defined in what? Terms of the new covenant, right? That's the only way that we can relate to God. Covenant is so important that God has created an entire institution that its primary job is to be an illustration of it. What is that? What institution is that? Marriage, right? Marriage is an illustration of a covenant. It's an example of what a covenant is supposed to look like. It is a covenant, and its purpose is to show us what God's love is like. It's an oath. It's another word for covenant. Made by one or more individuals to act in a certain way no matter what happens. An oath made by one or more individuals to act in a certain way no matter what happens. So, okay, now let's take this and let's apply this to how Jonathan and David use this in the midst of their problems. The key thing to note, okay, let's get back into the text. The key thing to note here is that both Jonathan and David appeal to covenants to provide refuge and safety for them in a fallen world. They're both, their lives are going crazy, but they both run into a covenant for safety. In a world of sin and sickness and separation and death and insane father-in-laws and insane mother-in-laws, covenants provide stability. Do you see? They provide stability. Even though his world is falling apart, Jonathan chose to let his behavior be directed not by how he felt, not by how the circumstances seemed to be playing out, but according to the covenantal promises he had made. Do you see how that's working? He had made a covenant with David, and the covenant was that he was going to place his interests, he was going to place David's interests above his own. And now he had a chance to do that, and it was going to cost him dearly. It was going to cost him his life, his family, his safety, friendship, and the kingdom. The same would be true for David to a lesser extent. David made a covenant oath with Jonathan that he would not forget his family when he became king. You've got to keep in mind that when there was a change in uh, ruling families, it was customary to kill all the other family, right? So Jonathan probably had that in mind. He was convinced that David was going to become king, and he was, making, he was trying to position himself so that David didn't slaughter him and his family. Well, David kept his word. We read later of how David cared for Jonathan's lame son. He kept his word. There'll be more on this for a moment, but now the key thing to note is that covenants are vehicles of safety in a world of chaos. But we should also pay attention to how these covenants function. And that brings us to a third point. When you don't know what to do, just be faithful. When you don't know what to do, just be faithful. This is really a point of application, but I think it's worth careful reflection. As I've already said, Jonathan and David both chose to let their behavior be driven not by their feelings, not by the culture, not by what their friends say, not by the easiest way out, but by the covenants they had made with one another. But it's in this text, it's Jonathan who's really the example, the great example of covenant-keeping faithfulness. I mean, he's in a horrible dilemma. He's stuck between his family and a covenant friend. And he has so much to lose. Friends, keeping covenants can be a very 
costly business. Some of you are in very hard marriages. Some of you did everything you could to hang on in a hard marriage. Keeping covenants can be a costly business. It usually, I would probably say, always hurts. But look what Jonathan does. He's faithful. Instead of trying to play God, instead of looking into the future, instead of wiggling out of his commitments, instead of sinning, Jonathan surrenders his life to the Lord and relies on him to save him. No matter what. And herein lies the important lesson for us. When your life is in chaos, when your circumstances and your experiences are so confusing, when your life in this disintegrating world is hard, what should you do? Be faithful. So often in the counseling room, I call this cutting through the fog. There are many times when our life is really hard and when we have big, big problems that we can feel so stuck that we don't know what to do. You ever been in completely blinding fog and you don't know which way to go? I remember Haley and I were on a trip in the mountains and I was hanging my head out the window at night trying to see the yellow lines on the Blue Ridge Parkway. The fog was so thick. We didn't know. I thought I was going to drive into a guardrail or off a cliff. or I, couldn't, I didn't know what to do. And when we come up on a curve, I was in the ditch before I was on the right. How do you cut through the fog in your life? When things are so confusing and so painful that it it seems like it would just be so much easier to sin than to be faithful. I know that there's times when you honestly just don't know what to do. I don't know if you're like me, but I've had those times. I, I want to obey God, but I just do not know what to do. I don't know what to do in my situation. Perhaps you don't know how to be faithful to your husband when he's violated your marriage covenant. Or perhaps obedience seems like it will just cost too much. Or you're just hurting so bad that you just can't bring yourself to love anymore, to obey God anymore, to serve idiot people anymore. Have you ever had those times? In your marriage, in your relationships, in your job, in your walk? I have. I know you have. Well, here's the principle for us. When you don't know what to do, Obey God. Just be faithful. I often tell people, find one thing that you know obeys the Lord and do that one thing. What is the next obedient step that you can take? And take it. Don't trouble yourself with the outcome. Don't, don't trouble yourself with having to solve all the problem. Don't, don't worry about how the other person responds. Don't worry about the cost. Leave all that stuff to the Lord. He can handle that. You can't. Just obey. Take whatever it is you know about God from his word and do it. I have found that even in the most blinding and foggy situations, where my eyes are filled with tears and I don't know what to do, I can always find an opportunity to put someone else's interest above my own. Always. There's always an opportunity for that. It does not take very long to come up with one way to serve, to forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. Or to use your words to build up, to return evil with good. Or to love your enemy. Find one thing that is true and obey. Church, we should be like Jonathan. 
And we should allow our covenant duties, which are not just in marriage, but all of God's law in the new covenant, to guide us through the chaos and the pain of our lives, like a compass in the fog or a GPS in a fallen land. Just follow the instructions and the Lord will preserve you. But that brings us now, we've got to keep moving, to consider a fourth point, And that is to beware of the dangers of a hard heart. Beware of the dangers of a hard heart. Some of the movies I like have exotic dinner scenes. Big family fight or throwing food or something. Well, verses 24 through 34, this is a table scene to remember. When David's seat at an important feast is empty the first night, Saul doesn't think much of it. But when it's empty the next night, Jonathan's called to give an explanation, okay? And so he gives the predetermined excuse that he and David had already agreed upon. Namely, he lied. Did you catch that in the reading of the text? Jonathan told Saul that David had gone to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice, which was not true. That wasn't true. He was hiding in a field. So there's an ethical question, I think, that comes to us as we're trying to interpret this and reading this. I'm not going to spend much time on it. And I might disappoint you, but the question is, is it okay to lie in order to preserve your life? Is it, is it ever okay to lie? Well, ethicists have looked at this and a couple other places in the Old Testament and tried to figure out what's going on. And there's a big debate, and I'm not going to answer that debate entirely, but I'll, I'll, say that I'll just point this out. It didn't work. So, I mean, Saul saw straight through it, right? His lie didn't work. I think it'd be better just to trust the Lord. I mean, it's easy to say up here, but I say it's best to stick to the truth. Ultimately, though, it's Jonathan, it's not Jonathan, but Saul who really blows it at dinner. When Saul figures out that Jonathan and David are lying to him, he is, in verse 30, his anger is kindled. So he gives Jonathan a verbal lashing that would make it into a Clark Griswold kind of dinner scene. I mean, he throws everything but the kitchen sink at Jonathan. His tactic, starting in verse 30, is typical for a man of the world. First thing he does is he tries to use shame and guilt, right? Kind of blames it on his mother, right? Son of a perverse woman. Or he calls Jonathan a disgrace, right? He shames him. He also tries to appeal to Jonathan's greed and vanity in verse 31. Neither you nor the kingdom shall be established as long as David lives, which is ironically true. Do you ever find yourself using some of Saul's tactics? You ever try to manipulate people with guilt or shame? Sometimes we call this passive-aggressive, but I'll save that. You ever use tactics like these? But even in the midst of this lashing, Jonathan's covenant faithfulness is on display with his answer in verse 32. He defends David and he pleads for his father to act justly. But if Jonathan was unsure of his father's motives before, he is very sure now. Because Saul, once again, does what he knows to do. He hurls a spear to solve his problem, even at his own son, verse 33. So as Jonathan leaves, we see how his faithfulness has cost him everything. But I think we should pause to consider how far Saul has fallen. 
Because this reminds us of the dangers of a hard heart. If you, if you think back on the first time that we were introduced to Saul, right? He is, he's the king of Israel. He's the man. Selected by God, sort of. But we saw him harden his heart in disobedience. And look how far he's fallen. He had a chance to repent, but he didn't. Do you think that Saul could have ever dreamed that that one sin would have had such a spiraling effect to lead to such insane sinful behavior? I mean, he's chucking spears at everyone. It's one thing if you have an anger problem. It's another thing if you have a language problem. It's another thing if you have a spear problem, right? Saul becomes a paranoid mess until he dies. And even though he had chances to repent, he refused to humble himself before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us again be reminded by Saul's example. Let us renew our minds as we consider that the danger of just one sin, just one sin that we refuse to repent of, look what it can do. It is the height of arrogance for us to sit here and think, that could never happen to me. You cannot say that. You cannot say that. I remember when I was in college, a friend of mine, a friend of our family's, he won Teacher of the Year in North Carolina, was caught molesting boys, was thrown in prison for 19 years, a deacon and a church member, and a member of the choir. And I remember thinking, could I do that? I mean, you can never say, I would never do that. We don't know the extent of the depravity of the human heart. If you say yes to sin one time, if you harden your heart to the conviction of the Spirit, we all sin, right? We all sin. But if you harden your heart to the conviction of the Spirit, that conviction that comes when you sin, if you harden your heart just one time, what happens? The next time, it's easier to say yes. Molesting boys does not begin with, I'm going to wake up and molest boys. It begins with a lustful look. And then pornography. And on down the road. Sin has a spiraling, hardening effect. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this specifically in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Brothers. Christians. Take care, Christian. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 12, 13, and 14. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. So the question is this. How do you avoid falling away like Saul? You think you got it? You think you're good? I mean, how do you know you're going to wake up tomorrow and love the Lord? How do you know you're going to wake up tomorrow with a desire to read the Bible? How do we guard ourselves from becoming like Saul? All of us can tell of people that we've seen walk with the Lord and fall away. I mean, dozens, hundreds of people. How can you know that won't be you? How can I know it won't be me? How many pastors have fallen away? 
Do you think Saul ever dreamed that it would end like this? Do you think any Christian wakes up and decides, I'm going to make a shipwreck of my faith today, or I'm going to have an affair, or I'm going to get addicted to pornography and ruin my life, right? You see, no. Satan is much, much smarter than that. He's a really good tempter. He's good at it. And just like the song, sin is usually a slow fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when the black and white are turned to gray. And when thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. How do you know that you will not fall away like Saul? Well, God has given us a built-in security system. A security system for the church. Protection. I have protection from my sinful heart. And I'm so thankful for this. You have protection available from our, we have protection available from our own hearts. And do you know what it is? Look around you. Seriously. Look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. See that kind of weird person? That's part, that's right. You probably thought I should have picked a different seat, right? The people in this room, I'm serious, guys. The people in this church, the people in your Sunday school class, in your small group Bible study, these are the people. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. If you come to church twice a month, this does not work, right? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But, but you know what? If you come to church 16 times a month, and some of you do, that doesn't mean that you get this benefit. If no one knows what's going on in your life, they cannot exhort you very well to guard you against the deceitfulness of sin. You cannot do that if you cannot tell someone that you're struggling. That's what it means, I think, to be an active member in a church. I don't care what role your name is on. I don't care how active you are in Sunday school. I don't care how many times you do meals ministry. Those are wonderful things. The question I have for you is, do people here know you? I don't mean your name. I don't mean your cat. I don't mean your Facebook friends. I mean, do they know you? Who knows about your struggles? Who knows about your marriage difficulties? Who knows about your purity problem or your money problems? Who knows? If no one knows you, you are in danger of falling away. We should beware of the dangers of a saw-like hard heart. Hard hearts do not simply throw spears at people. They pull away from church members. Jonathan's response to Saul was right. By choosing covenant faithfulness, he left his father in a spirit of, I think, Matthew chapter 6, where it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Saul was looking ahead, or Jonathan was giving up things of earth to obtain things from God. I'm reminded of Luke 14, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jonathan is an example of a true disciple. But this brings us to one final point, 
and this wonderful news. You can have peace in a fallen world. You can have peace in a world where your father-in-law throws spears at you. The text records Jonathan and David's tearful goodbye for us in verse 41 through 43. They kissed one another, both weeping, David the hardest. And then Jonathan says in verse 20, verse 42, he says, look at this carefully. Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Okay, what do we make of this? In the midst of all this pain, I mean, they literally stopped crying and reminded themselves. Jonathan reminded them that even though the sorrow was great, that because of their covenants, they can depart in peace. I think we should learn from this. That if we too will commit to a life of covenant faithfulness, then we can enjoy peace in a fallen world. I don't have time to expound how all of this fits, not just with marriage, but with every command given to us in the New Testament. When you obey the Lord, you will find peace in a fallen world. But it's, it's bigger than that. I'd rather spend time on this aspect of it. We should be like Jonathan and David, running to covenant for safety. Flee to a covenant. Friend, flee to a covenant. I'm not talking about a covenant with each other. I'm not talking about a covenant with a good friend. I'm not talking about a marriage covenant. I'm talking about a covenant with God. True peace, lasting peace, comes only through the stability of a covenant with God. When God says to you, no matter what you do, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you do, sinner, neither height nor depth nor anything in all the world can separate you from the love of Christ. That is the covenant safety that we have only in Christ. We could say it like this. Peace comes through covenant with God. And the only way you get access to covenant with God is through Jesus, the true David. All throughout the Old Testament, we read of time and time again where God has established a covenant with sinful man and God requires a faithful covenant partner. But he never found one. He could not find one. Not Adam, not Noah, not David, not Moses, not Israel, none. None of them. He could not find a faithful covenant partner. We see that man was never able to uphold his end of the covenant. Except one. When the man, Jesus Christ, came, he came ushering in the new covenant inviting us to enter into relationship with him. And in this new arrangement, the terms that he defines for the relationship, they're great. In this new relationship, here's the deal. Here's what you get. He pays the penalty for your sin. He keeps the law for you. And, where, and then he gives you the spirit. He puts him in your heart and he actually writes the law of God on your new heart and gives you the desire to obey. And when you fail, you've got atonement for sin so that you might be secured in an eternal covenant relationship with God. God will not divorce you, believer. No matter how stupid, no matter how much adultery you commit, he will not divorce you. Flee to covenant safety. You see, covenant faithfulness, whether that be among two friends or in a hard marriage or between God and sinners, that provides the necessary stability for peace in a fallen world. 
And you too, my brothers and sisters, can have peace in a world of sin, death, and separation. That peace is only found through the covenant keeper, the covenant fulfiller, Jesus Christ. Flee to him today and praise him tonight. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Christ who did what we couldn't do and has obeyed where we haven't obeyed and has purchased for us an eternal, secure redemption. And because of his merits, we have been adopted and have an inheritance with the saints and we will spend all eternity seeking to grasp the depth and the height and the breadth of your love. So Father, we give you praise. Preserve us as we endure life in this fallen world and help us to display to the world what you, the covenant-keeping God, is like. We ask this in your name. Amen. Go in peace, church. You're dismissed.